The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. So you want to be involved in the search tomorrow? Yes, I asked. Um, I know the area well. Um, I, I mountain bike out there. I run out at Stony Creek all the time. I and mean, if that's where they're looking, as, as well as anyone, I know the, the, the area. Talk to us about this. How Did you jog? Did you bike? Who? Tara. Tara? Oh, um, I, I think you meant me. Um, no, Tara did. Uh, she, she mountain bikes. Um, I mean, she's got a pretty nice bike. But um, uh, and we have mountain biked out there in the past. But um, recently, no, um, not since the kids. What did you bring today? What's your feeling about the fact that 150 <clears throat> people and volunteers will be out looking for her tomorrow? Um, well, it scares me because the reason they're looking for her in in the park is because they're they're afraid something horrible's happened, and I I don't want to think that. On February 9, 2007, Tara Grant was traveling home from a business trip in Puerto Rico. Tara had worked her way up the corporate ladder to an executive position in her company. The position had her traveling away from her family every week to an office in San Juan, and then flying back to her home in Detroit, Michigan on weekends. From the outside looking in, the family of four had everything, and were living a happy and successful life together. Tara's high-paying job allowed for them to live in a nice home, drive nice cars, and their children were both enrolled in private school. But sadly, that picture-perfect exterior began to crumble when Stephen Grant reported his wife missing five days after she returned home from her trip. Join me now as we take a deeper look into what appeared to be a happy marriage and the sudden disappearance of an aspiring businesswoman. We'll discover how a cascade of lies, resentment, and infidelity eventually led a middle-aged American dad to do the unthinkable. On Valentine's Day 2007, five days after Tara flew home to spend the weekend with her family, Stephen reported her missing to the Macomb County Sheriff's Department. He told them that his wife had returned home from her business trip only to repack another bag and leave again. He said she abruptly left after an argument erupted between the two of them about her work. Stephen told them 
that the fight had started after Tara announced she would be returning back to Puerto Rico a day earlier. Although the couple had a live-in nanny, Stephen felt that Tara worked away from home too much. He said the last time he saw her, she was talking on her phone to someone, telling them to pick her up at the end of the driveway. He said he then saw her get into a black sedan. Stephen told authorities that he left several phone messages to her, begging her to come back or at least to call their children. But she never answered. He said he waited five days to report her missing because he suspected she was having an affair and had run off with another man. Stephen and Tara Grant met when Tara was attending Michigan State University in the 90s. Stephen was interested in politics, and Tara was interested in working her way towards a business degree. When the two met, Stephen fell instantly for Tara and asked her out. They had mutual friends and regularly got together at bars, and although they talked quite a bit, Tara wasn't interested in Stephen. She had an on-and-off-again relationship with the man back home, and that was the excuse she gave to Stephen. But Stephen wasn't giving up. He was persistent and continued to pursue her. After some time, Stephen finally convinced Tara to allow him to take her out on a date. His plan was to take her on a tour of Detroit, as she often joked that his hometown was a giant ghetto. Although the date went well, Tara still wasn't sold on the idea of Stephen. It wasn't until he made a six-hour drive from Lansing to Escanaba, Michigan, Tara's hometown, and appeared unannounced to attend her grandmother's funeral, that Tara was finally convinced. The following day, Tara called Stephen up and told him she was in love with him. Growing up, Classmates recalled Stephen being somewhat of a goofy guy. That's why one of Stephen's friends remembers actually feeling surprised when Stephen managed to win the heart of a woman like Tara. He was the guy that you thought would grow up and rob a liquor store and leave his name tag on and you'd see him on the stupidest criminals. Steve wasn't the most popular kid in the world. He wasn't the best looking. And so I guess when I saw his wife, I was like, wow, good job, Steve. I never thought you would get, get someone like Tara. Stephen had been a mischievous young adult, frequently taking his mother's car without her knowledge and going on joyrides. He was also known to shoplift. One time, he even got caught as he ran away from the store. He literally got stuck in the mud and fell over, giving the store manager a chance to catch up with him. After graduating high school, Stephen attended college for a brief period of time, but never declared a major or finished a degree. Stephen had several jobs and was even fired once for stealing a $20 bill from the cash register. But one day, he finally managed to secure a job working for a senator as a clerk for a local politician in Lansing, Michigan. Tara, on the other hand, had grown up in a farm in a small rural community called Perkins, just north of Escanaba. 
It's the kind of place where everyone knows everyone, including their personal business. Families who live there have been there for generations, and children who've grown up there don't generally venture far when they become adults. Tara's parents, who were both hardworking, moved to Perkins when she was almost two years old. A year later, her younger sister Alicia was born. Her mother Mary worked as a dental hygienist at the time, and her father Dusty was a utility worker at a nearby Air Force base. Though they were a fairly tight family, they didn't always see eye to eye. As a child, Tara was known to be quite chatty and was always smiling. In fact, she was so chatty, her parents would often tell her that if she didn't get into trouble at school for talking, she'd get a stick of gum when she got home. In high school, Tara kept herself busy and was very involved with plenty of extracurricular activities, which included cheerleading, the school band, and a local 4-H program. Described as somewhat of a tomboy, Tara loved horseback riding, skeet shooting, and hunting. As much as Tara seemed to fit in with the expectations of small-town living, that's not where she intended on staying. She had always been extremely ambitious, and as she grew older, she had her sights set on bigger things. Despite what seemed to be a mountain of differences between Tara and Stephen's upbringing, personality, and career aspirations, they quickly fell in love and moved in together. Stephen continued to work as a clerk, while Tara finished going to university, eventually graduating with honors and a business degree. After graduating, the couple were married, and not too long after that, Stephen's job ended working with the senator, and he convinced Tara to move to an upscale suburb in Detroit, close to where Stephen had grown up. His father, Al, who owned a tool and dye shop nearby, offered him a job with a decent salary. After they moved, Tara found a temporary job working for a company that would later become Washington Group International, an engineering firm. Settled into their new apartment, both working, the young couple seemed happy in their new domesticated life together, and it wasn't long before they had enough money saved to move into their first house. In 2000, they moved once again into a larger house, and Tara gave birth to their first child, a baby girl. Two years after that, they had their second child, a baby boy. The Grants appeared to be living the all-American dream, a new home in a well-to-do neighborhood, two beautiful children, and Tara's new high-paying job, which had her flying to different parts of the world, bringing Stephen along with her on occasion. But they soon realized, with two young kids, they couldn't keep up with their new traveling lifestyle. At least one of them needed to commit more time to being home with the children. And that was going to be Stephen. As Tara's career was beginning to rise, it appeared that Stephen's self-esteem began to fall, and he would find ways to make himself seem more successful than he was. George Hunter, 
a crime reporter from the Detroit News, who eventually developed a rapport with Stephen Grant, gave us some insight. Stephen was a house husband, which there's nothing wrong with that, but he thought there was. He was incredibly emasculated by that. And in fact, when he would talk to people, he would lie and put himself in Tara's shoes. So he would pretend he had her job. He would say, I work for this international construction company and I go to Puerto Rico. And clearly he, you know, he was embarrassed. And then when I talked to him one time and I mentioned just an open-ended question, I said, Tara makes a lot of money. You wouldn't believe how defensive this guy got. He went on, he said, well, I make money too. You know, I work for a major auto supplier, you know, I'm part owner. He said, it was his dad. His dad made ball bearings, you know, for, it was an auto supplier. They made, you know, second tier auto supplier, but he made like 16,000 or 11,000. So he told me, oh no, I make a lot of money too, which was a lie. It was one of his many, the guy was a pathological liar and he actually would go to the point of having props for his lies. He had a, for instance, a, a diploma from Michigan State University ginned up. He never graduated from there, but, but he pretended he did. And he would, he, you know, he, he pretended he was this Michigan State alumnus. He painted his kid's room green, which is Michigan State's colors are green and white. So, you know, he's just a guy who's a pathological liar. In 2003, the Grants hired their first au pair to help Stephen with the kids. While he continued to work at his father's shop, when Tara flew home for weekends, she was extremely involved in her kids' lives, and the family of four did everything together. Although they only seemed to manage to secure live-in nannies for short periods of time, Tara and Stephen were juggling things as best as they could. In 2006, Tara was asked to head up her company's team at the San Juan office where she was to whittle down the number of employees. The new position meant Tara would be required to travel each Monday to Puerto Rico, returning on weekends to be with her family. Stephen was really great with the kids, but didn't enjoy when Tara would go away for as long and as often as she was needed. Steve Miller, a journalist and author who interviewed Stephen Grant for his book Slain in the suburbs conveyed to us one of the elements that was an accelerant in the erosion of the couple's marriage. I think he had become resentful because she was an upwardly mobile and he worked in his dad's tool shop. As she began to travel more and so on and he became, you know, he was, he was at home alone with the kids more. I think he, he had said he, he, yeah, he was kind of wearing him out a little bit. He really wanted that whole family thing. That's what he, uh, he really wanted that whole family thing. He felt he, he felt he wasn't getting that. It was no secret that Stephen didn't especially love his job at his father's tool and die shop. It was grueling and dirty work. The commute back to the seedy neighborhood where the shop was located was also a stark contrast to the place and life he now lived. Just before Tara was to start traveling every week to Puerto Rico, they managed to finally secure the help of an au pair from Germany. The 19-year-old named Verena was reliable and extremely loving towards their kids. They couldn't have asked for more. 
Meanwhile, onlookers questioned the wisdom in their decision. Was it really the best idea to hire a young, beautiful woman to live in their home while Tara traveled as much as she did? Their concerns were valid, but no one felt comfortable enough to bring it up to the Grants. After only a few months, Stephen started to become flirtatious with Verena. Without his wife home as much, Stephen was left to his own devices, and the 19-year-old nanny was flattered by his advances. Around the same time, Stephen planned to wipe the data off of one of Tara's old computers while she was away, so he could give it to Verena. In the midst of going through it, he came across some emails from a year prior between his wife and one of her ex-boyfriends. Although it didn't seem like the two had followed through with their plans to meet, Stephen questioned whether he could trust his wife was being faithful while on her trips to Puerto Rico. By January, Stephen and Verena had become physically intimate, sneaking moments together while Tara was away for work and the children were sleeping. After finding his wife's emails, it almost seemed as though that was Stephen's permission to do some dabbling of his own. Yet from the outside looking in, everything seemed to be going smoothly between the couple. They hosted a Christmas party in December with co-workers and friends, and Tara had written up her New Year's resolutions. She wanted to spend more time with the family, more time with Stephen, be more attentive to their finances, and get more in tune with herself through meditation and exercise. In January, Tara and Stephen spent a romantic week together in Puerto Rico, celebrating his 37th birthday. But just after their week together, Stephen contacted an ex-girlfriend named Dina from his early days. Someone he had kept in contact with annually for the past decade, asking her what was going on in her life. But this time, his call was different. He was being flirtatious with her, and asked her to exchange email addresses. That month, they exchanged over a dozen phone conversations in which he suggested that his wife was having an affair. In an email exchange, he wrote, I like being married. I just think of marriage vows like speed limits. Sometimes you have to break them. You just need to keep an eye on the road to avoid detection. He then asked if Dina would meet up with him but then canceled saying he couldn't do it. He didn't want to mess up his kids that way. Later, on February 1st, 2007, he told Verena that she was beautiful and he wanted to sleep with her. Over the next few days, he was persistent in telling her what he wanted from her and sent her emails telling her he was feeling itchy, a term he would use to indicate that he wanted to have sex. A few days before Tara came home on the 9th, Stephen and Verena started sharing a bed together. At first, it was in her room, and she reported they would only cuddle and kiss. But on the 8th, the day before Tara arrived, Stephen managed to convince the 19-year-old nanny to spend the night in his bed. And once again, the intimacy escalated even further. The next morning, the Grant's six-year-old daughter came into the bedroom to find her dad and the nanny in bed together. 
but Farina quickly hid beneath the covers. On the evening of February 9th, 2007, Stephen was waiting for his wife to return once again from her trip to Puerto Rico. As he paced around their bedroom, he quickly sent a text message. You owe me a kiss, he said. But the text wasn't to his wife. It was to Verena, who was out dancing at a bar with some friends. He urged her to come home before Tara arrived so he could have one last exchange with her before spending the weekend with his wife. Verena felt a bit annoyed, as she was enjoying hanging out with her friends. He messaged her again, telling her that if she came home and Tara was there, to make a noise and he would come down to give her a kiss. Farina returned back to the Grant home around 11.30 p.m. She was startled by Stephen tearing down the stairs, yelling, What are you doing here? He then explained that Tara had returned home earlier, but that they had gotten into a fight and she left, really meaning she had left him. He said an airport car came around and picked her up, and she took off. On February 12th, three days later, Stephen called Tara's office and spoke to her boss, who told him that Tara hadn't arrived at work. Stephen then told authorities he called Tara's mother to tell her that Tara had never made it to work. It wasn't until two days later, at around noon on February 14th, Valentine's Day, that Stephen would finally enter the Macomb County Sheriff's Department to report his wife missing. Deputy Bill Hughes was the first to meet with Stephen to collect his statement, which he would later pass along to the Detectives Bureau. Deputy Hughes sat down with Stephen and immediately noticed a scratch on his nose. Stephen explained that he got the scratch from a piece of scrap metal from when he was working at his father's shop. He further went on to say that he was mostly a stay-at-home dad, but he also sometimes helped out at his father's shop. Hughes also noticed a scratch on Stephen's hand and wrote it down in his notepad. Stephen was very chatty during this statement and had no difficulty answering questions. But the deputy was suspicious, and that suspicion only grew when he asked how long Tara had been missing, and Stephen replied, Five days. When he asked why he waited five days, he said it was because Tara's boss had told him not to bother reporting her missing. He said the next day he spoke with Tara's mother, and she told him it also wasn't necessary. He went on to say that he believed Tara was having an affair with a colleague, and that her mom and sister were all covering up for her. Later, as detectives were reading the preliminary report, Lieutenant Darga of the Sheriff's Department received a telephone call from another sergeant in Lansing, Michigan. She said she was calling as a favor for a friend who wanted police to look into her sister's disappearance. It seemed the missing woman's husband was only just getting around to reporting her missing after being gone for five days. The woman who was asking was Alicia Standifer, 
Tara Grant's sister. The police decided it was time to take a trip to the Grant residence to see if they could rattle Stephen into telling them what really had happened. A little while later, after being assigned to the case, Detective Kozlowski sent an unmarked police car to watch the Grant home. Kozlowski wanted them to watch the house at all times to see if anyone came or went from the residence. A little while later, Kozlowski and Detective McLean arrived at Stephen's home and were introduced to his two children and the nanny. As Kozlowski and Stephen sat down to chat, Detective McLean gently guided the nanny away from the conversation towards where the children were eating dinner. McLean noticed right away that the nanny appeared nervous and avoided eye contact. After chatting for only a few minutes, Farina said she needed to go, leaving the detective with the children. Meanwhile, Stephen and Kozlowski were talking in the den. Stephen too appeared to be nervous, with eyes darting all over. Kozlowski then asked if he could take a look around. As Stephen escorted him throughout the house, he even went as far as to log into their computer and show that none of Tara's bank accounts had been touched. Not a single transaction had been made by Tara since the 9th. Next, they went into the garage where Tara's vehicle was, and inside was her planner. Kozlowski asked to see it, noting to himself that if Tara had intended on returning to work early, she would have most likely taken her planner with her. Something seemed off. He looked around the garage, trying to get a feel for anything that looked out of place or suspicious. He really wanted to shake Stephen up, so he suddenly asked him straight out if either he or Tara had been screwing around on each other. Stephen immediately answered no for himself, but he then told the detective that Tara had previously had an affair, but it was over now. Kozlowski then asked Stephen if he could turn over the family computer to them, but he refused, saying Tara never used that computer, so it would be useless. As they concluded the interview, Detective Kozlowski told Stephen he would probably need him to come back to the station the next day for a polygraph. Stephen then blurted out, You don't think I did something to my wife, do you? The detectives told them that they didn't, they were just doing their job, and then Stephen visibly relaxed. He told them that he would be in the following morning. Kozlowski then casually asked if it would be okay for evidence techs to come by the house to take some pictures. He agreed and then burst into tears as he walked them to the door. Kozlowski immediately sent out the evidence techs to take pictures of the scratches on Stephen's hand and nose and of the home. The following day, on Thursday, February 15th, detectives received a fax from a high-powered defense attorney named David Grimm, stating that he had been retained by Stephen Grant. David Grimm informed detectives 
that any further communication they wished to have with Stephen would need to go through him. He also told them that Stephen wouldn't be taking the polygraph they had requested. This seemed rather surprising to the detectives, as Stephen had seemed so cooperative and willing to help with the investigation just the night before. His change in behavior only made them more suspicious of him. Later that same afternoon, as Stephen was leaving his father's shop, he looked up to see flashing lights in his rearview mirror. After being pulled over, he was arrested and charged with driving on a suspended license. He later bonded out of jail, but was furious with police, believing now that they were out to get him. On February 17th, Kozlowski did a formal interview with Verena. She was evasive and didn't make eye contact with him. He knew something was off and was sure she wasn't telling him the truth about her relationship with Stephen. He and the agency she worked for agreed she should no longer stay at the Grant home, but Stephen managed to get the agency to let her stay one more night with him. The following week, on February 21st, Verena flew back to Germany, while Sheriff Mark Hackle from the Macomb County Sheriff's Department held a press conference. He announced that he would be giving a daily press conference until Tara Grant was found. The sheriff knew this could possibly anger people, including some of his own deputies. On the other hand, reporters like George Hunter from the Detroit News understood it and appreciated it. Yeah, I actually thought that was a smart idea because once the case became a national case, you know, it became a recession with, with the local media, as you might imagine. It was a huge story. So we're going to call his people every day, all day anyway. So I think the way he was thinking was, let me just have a press conference every day at 11 o'clock. Every morning there was the same, you know, it was a standing thing for weeks. And that way it gave us the crumbs we wanted. And it also enabled his investigation. So we're not calling his people and bugging them rather than having his public information guy field 30 different reporters making phone calls. He figured it was easier just to have one press conference and then get it all because we were going to call him anyway. That's the thing. You know, some people criticize that saying he was grandstanding for the media. But I mean, my private opinion of it is that I think all police departments in big cases like this should do that. You know, of course, we want, you know, the media, we want information and quotes and things like that and even on days when there wasn't any new news sheriff mark hackle who later became the county executive there you know he gave us our quote unquote our quotes for the day you know so, so it was it was a different way of saying yes she's still missing and yes we are still investigating but you know we need something to, to, to put in the paper or put on our newscast so you know i think that was his motivation for doing that i mean that's certainly what he told me that's why he said that he did it and and it actually makes sense. We're going to bother you anyway, so get it out of the way in one fell swoop, and then you don't have to field 30 phone calls, you know. What Sheriff Hackle hadn't expected was for Stephen to start his own media campaign. Stephen not only agreed to give interviews to local reporters, he invited it and made requests for it. 
he began to develop what he considered a friendship with a few reporters. One reporter was Hank Winchester from Local 4 News in Detroit. Another was George Hunter from Detroit News. In fact, my editor used to joke around and say, he's your buddy. He would call me. I've never had that. We did a Sunday story called, you know, the headline said, Who is Tara Grant? At the time, she's still considered a missing person. So we went up to the upper peninsula of Michigan, uh, which is a rural, you know, wooded area. And we went up there and, and she was, you know, did a, did a basic bio on her, you know, who is Tara Grant? She was kind of a country gal. She liked to, you know, go out and tap maple syrup from trees and things like that. So after that story ran, Stephen calls me and he says, Hey, I've got a great idea for a story. Who is Stephen Grant? <laughs> and so he would call me almost every day and say, Hey, are you putting anything about me in the paper tomorrow? It was really strange. I've never had that. And I was there for a lot of those TV interviews as well. His eyes would get really big. And that was one of the things that everybody commented on was the, the Stephen Grant eyes. Here's where it gets tricky because he did seem like he was guilty to me. He was hiding something. But as a reporter, when you're covering these cases, and I've got a lot of experience covering these, I have to put that aside because we've seen too many instances where reporters have just decided that people are guilty. They write the stories that way. So I don't want to do that. That's not how you do journalism. So what I think at that stage of an, of an investigation or a case, what I think means nothing. So if I think he's guilty, that means nothing. So I have to, I have a process in my head where I say, wait a minute now, you, you know, you don't know anything. People grieve differently. I mean, how would I react if my wife was missing for weeks? Stephen was giving interviews and making appearances left, right, and center, pleading for Tara to return home. He talked about how much he missed her and that the police were harassing him even though he was being cooperative, though he still refused to turn over the home computer. Every time the sheriff saw one of Stephen's bug-eyed interviews, he made sure to watch it. Grant's crazy-eyed look made him seem even more suspicious. When one reporter asked him, If Tara is out there, what would you say right now? Call the sheriff's office. Don't you want her to call you? It seemed to most keeping track of Tara's disappearance in the media that Stephen was obviously involved in his wife's disappearance by the way he was acting, no matter how many tears he shed in front of the news cameras. If not, I hope myself has 10 messages from her. I walk back into the room. Please call anybody. Call the police. Call me. Call in must call someone. If you see her, Please. The sheriff continued to allude to Stephen's involvement without directly saying it. In the meantime, detectives digging into Stephen and Terrace's relationship quickly began to discover all the inconsistencies in his statements. He said in one interview, that he thought Tara was having an affair with her colleague, but then in another, said she had previously had an affair, but was now faithful. He told the police that on the night she had left, 
he recalled hearing Tara telling someone that she would meet them at the end of the driveway and that Tara frequently used airport transportation because of how much she traveled. But when police analyzed her phone records, they discovered she hadn't made any phone calls during the time in question and had, in fact, only used the airport transportation service once in the past year. Even Verena said it would be out of the norm for Tara not to drive herself to the airport when traveling. Police also discovered that Stephen had been in contact recently with a former girlfriend via email. The woman came forward to police after she confided in George Hunter, the crime reporter from the Detroit News, who also happened to be an acquaintance of hers. One of my co-workers sent me some emails that the husband, Stephen Grant, had sent to his ex-girlfriend. And these emails made the husband look really guilty. Stephen Grant was complaining to his ex-girlfriend that he thought his wife, Tara, who at the time was considered missing, his email complained that he thought she was cheating on him with her boss. And then he was flirting with this ex-girlfriend, you know, asking for sponge baths and other uh, such creepy stuff. As a journalist, we're not supposed to help the police. We're just supposed to cover what happens. We're not supposed to be actively advocating for anything. You know, I asked my editor, I said, man, what do we do with these emails? I feel like as a citizen that the police should know about these. But as a journalist, is it my job? And she said, no, it's not your job. So what we agreed to do was to call the woman who gave us Dina Hardy, her name was, that was the ex-girlfriend. And so I called her and I just asked her, have you given these to police? And she said, no, but yeah, it's a good idea. I'm going to give them to the police. You know, so that I'm not telling her she should, you know, I'm not advocating for her, but I asked her if she did or if she was going to, and then she said, yeah, she would. So they made him really look guilty. And, and that sort of took the case from being just a, hey, there's a missing woman in Washington Township, Michigan, which was, you know, put on the inside pages. There, there were a couple stories, but they were mostly briefs. And now, uh, after police started investigating uh, these emails, then he became under suspicion and the story started getting national prominence. Detectives now had a multitude of emails and phone records between Stephen and Verena, his former girlfriend, and even Tara herself. They knew they were on to something, and they had to keep on going. Stephen would make a mistake sooner or later. During a press conference held on February 22nd, Sheriff Hackle announced that the police would be searching a wooded area looking for Tara, as they now considered her disappearance a homicide. He indicated that they just needed Stephen's cooperation in turning over their home computer and some of Tara's clothes for the canine dog and couldn't understand why Stephen wasn't agreeing to do these basic things. At a later press conference, the sheriff announced the exact location the search would take place. Stony Creek Metro Park, that upcoming Saturday. A place that Stephen had mentioned quite often in the past couple weeks as a place their family liked to go. Following the press conference, Stephen took to the media as well and gave an interview saying that he wanted to participate in the search. Sheriff Hackle simply replied by saying, the only way Stephen Grant could help is if he could tell them where Tara was. 
Grant's attorney faxed the sheriff's department, stating he would not allow his client to participate in any way. The following day, Stephen arrived at the Macomb County Sheriff's Department with two laptops that belonged to Tara. He said he wanted to cooperate by bringing them to the police. He had the media tailing him when he brought the laptops in and told detectives that he wanted to assist in the ground search, but again, was told his assistance was not required. On the way out, Stephen made sure to give more interviews to the reporters, who he presumably invited there himself. On Saturday, February 24th, 150 police personnel, search dogs, ATVs, and air units began the search of the Stony Creek Park, located about three miles from the Grant's home. The search made national headlines but would unfortunately produce zero results. While announcing to the public the disappointing news, Sheriff Hackle advised the public to keep an eye out in the park for anything that seemed out of place or suspicious and to report anything found to the police. A website was then established and a 1-800 line was then set up for anonymous tips related to Tara's disappearance. Tips began to flood in, and police ran down all possible leads, ruling each one out. Their eyes, however, were still on Stephen, waiting for him to make a mistake. During one daily press conference, it was announced that Stephen had been arrested for driving with a suspended license and there was over 4000 in cash found in his glove box. By now, David Grimm, Stephen's lawyer, felt his client was being harassed by local law enforcement and made sure to let them know that. George Hunter recalls the allegations. Yeah, that's kind of Grimm's style. He's handled several high-profile cases, and he's a very, very good attorney. And as such, as a good attorney, you're going to advocate for your client. So he often will make those, you know, they're picking on my client, that sort of thing. He's just doing his job there, you know. Certainly, he, he did make that allegation. On Wednesday, February 28th, a woman by the name of Sheila Werner was out for a walk and was picking up litter along the way when she came across something unusual. She noticed what appeared to be a Ziploc bag. She was able to see it because the bag was red and stood out in contrast to the fresh white snow. As she approached the bag, she remembered what the sheriff had said at the press conference following the search of the park. The bag certainly looked out of place when she picked it up, she noticed it was filled with what looked like blood, latex gloves, plastic bags all balled up, and what appeared to be metal shavings. She gripped the bag and went home, and immediately called the police. Detective Kozlowski sent an evidence tech to her home to pick up the bag, so it could be immediately analyzed. The tech told Lieutenant Darga and Kozlowski not to get their hopes up too much. 
She said the park was frequented by hunters and was likely a bag left by someone who had shot a deer. The lab, while often backlogged, got right on to testing the evidence and was quickly able to verify that the blood was indeed human. They just hadn't identified whose it was yet. Kozlowski was sure this was enough for them to obtain a search warrant for the Grant home. He quickly got all his paperwork together and had Lieutenant Darker review the warrants and the sheriff signed off. They took the search warrant to the Macomb County Prosecutor, Eric Smith. It was then faxed to the judge, who signed it. And finally, Detective Kozlowski had what he needed to search both the Grant family home and also Stephen's father's shop due to the metal shavings found inside the Ziploc bag. On March 2nd, search warrants in hand. The first search was conducted at Stephen's father's tool and die shop. After searching for an hour, nothing of real value was immediately found other than some metal shavings which they gathered as evidence to compare with the shavings from the bag. Kozlowski then planned to move on to the Grant residence. But first, they had to locate Stephen. Stephen had just finished doing another interview when they found him. During that interview, he went off the rails. My editor was standing right there kind of listening, and he started going off on his wife remind you that she's still considered technically missing. And he started talking about her in the past tense and he was criticizing her as a mother. He was saying she was a terrible mother and you know, everyone's acting like she's this big angel. Well, she's not. And I'm thinking to myself while he's saying this, it's like, are you kidding me? You know, this is your wife. She's supposedly missing and you're here just trashing her. So he was, I don't know. I'm guessing here, but I'm thinking he might've felt like the walls were closing in on him. When a deputy caught up with Stephen, he was sitting inside his Jeep. The deputy asked him to get out of his vehicle and placed him in the back of his squad car while he explained to Stephen that a judge had signed a search warrant for his home. He then explained they needed him to drive over to his home to let them in. On the way to the Grant's home, Detective Kozlowski could hear helicopters in the distance and realized that the media had already caught wind of the search warrants. When he arrived at the Grant residence, Stephen was already there with the deputy, along with a team of forensic people and officers taping off the perimeter of the property. After letting the officers in, Stephen called his attorney. Then he said he needed to step outside to take his dog for a walk. As he left the house, he headed towards his vehicle, but was intercepted by another detective. He told the detective he needed to get inside his vehicle to get his wallet. He was informed that the vehicle was part of the search warrant and he was not to touch or remove anything. Frustrated, he called a friend named Mike and explained that the police were searching his home and had impounded his car. Mike and Stephen had become friends after coaching his kids' soccer team together. Stephen told Mike that he was free to leave but just needed a ride and asked his friend to meet him down the street. Stephen then headed off 
with his dog. After Stephen's friend showed up to give him a lift, they drove around for a while. Stephen kept looking over his shoulder, thinking they were being followed. Mike wondered why his friend was acting so jittery. As they were driving, Stephen confessed to Mike that he'd been having an affair with the nanny and that detectives were going to find flirtatious emails between them on the computer. After pulling into Mike's driveway, Stephen asked if he could borrow his car. His friend offered to lend him his wife's Dodge Dakota pickup truck instead, which just happened to be bright yellow. Stephen then called his sister, who was attending church. She was there for a Friday night dinner with her husband and Stephen's children who they'd been watching for the past few days. He asked if she would mind if he swung by to get their house keys so he could stop by her house to drop the dog off. He told her that police were searching his house and he needed to get the dog out of there, and she agreed. After swinging by the church to get his sister's keys, he then headed over to her house. While inside, he stole a bottle of Vicodin and hopped back into the truck and drove off into the night. Stay tuned for the conclusion of this story, where you'll hear the chilling details of Stephen's misdeeds. And what actually happened to Tara? We'll reveal what detectives later shockingly uncovered at the Grant residence resulting in one of the largest manhunts Emmett County has ever seen. I would like to thank Steve Miller and George Hunter for providing some really great insight on this case. We've included links to them in our show notes. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Ashley B., Marianne C., Kimberly H., Michelle R., Lisa Oz, Donna S., Becky S., Mark D, Martha H, Bella K, Living Doll, Tonya M, and Lee S. And also a special thank you to Maggie James. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Australian True Crime. I didn't find this out till we went to the trial till we actually got to meet the investigators, is that they swerved towards Chris. So they actually, the driver swerved the car at the same time that the gun was fired. I've written to probably probably four, five hundred serial killers and killers and murderers and baby killers and pederasts and 
all that sort of stuff. I've, I've written to wow. lots around the world. I even have a bomber, so from Melbourne. So police have pulled them over thinking, oh, you know, we'll just have a chat to these people. They managed to back into the police car perfectly so that the police car's disabled and then take off. I can remember thinking to myself, I think I'm in a room with a murderer that has beaten a woman senseless and I'm sitting here on my own with him. This is Australian True Crime. Come with us as we explore how people become killers, how people become victims, and what happens next. And murder in my family. This is Mike Morford. You may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast, Criminology. I'd like to invite you to listen to my new podcast, The Murder in My Family, which is out right now. In each episode, I discuss a murder case and include an interview with a family member of the victim to discuss the aftermath of the murder. Some of the cases I cover are well known, and others you probably haven't heard of. And I have several episodes currently available for you to binge on, including episodes about the Delphi murders, the Golden State Killer, and the Colonial Parkway murders, just to name a few. Here's a small sample. Bill Thomas is the brother of Kathy Thomas, and he agreed to talk with me about the murder in his family. Well, Mike, at the risk of sounding like every other proud big brother around the world, Kathy was an amazing person. And one thing I wanted to get across is how important it is that the victims that I'll be talking about in these cases aren't just statistics. You know, they were real people. They're more than just murder victims. For me, knowing that he has a family and that he gets to see his kids every day and that he gets to be there for his kids growing up, like, it's just, it's not fair. He was the most funniest man I've ever met. He was everybody's friend. New episodes come out on Saturdays, and you can find The Murder of My Family wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E.